a pleasure to be here this evening. Um, after this long holiday weekend, I hope you all had a rest and experienced some joy with friends and family. Um, that's, you know, really an interesting way for me to think about why we do this, come here, listen to Narrative Medicine Rounds, our speakers, it's because we're coming into community and it's a way for all of us to really connect to the work of narrative medicine. I'm really excited to have a former professor and now colleague and friend this evening uh, present to us her book. Um, but first I'd like to introduce to all of you what Narrative Medicine Rounds is. So we're here each month of the academic year and we're hosted by the Division of Narrative Medicine and the Department of Medical Humanities and Ethics here at Columbia University. So we bring and try to bring this connection with other thought leaders, artists, creative thinkers to join us in relation to how narrative medicine works within the concept of the work that they're doing. And so it allows us a, a peek, an insight into ways in which narrative medicine, the work of narrative medicine works within our communities to build healthier communities, to connect, to allow for these stories to really bridge us all together as humans. And it's been a journey of mine for the past whew, six years now. And I am so grateful. And this season right now is about gratitude, in my opinion. And I'm so grateful that I've had this experience of narrative, of sharing my stories, of bridging my experience of illness and death with the work of the humanities and learning more and more about how we're rooted in, as I have uh, Rita's, Rita's uh, voices in my mind right now, the, the pedagogy, the, the theory, the ways in which that it's, it's rooted in humanity. And that has been such a um, gift. And tonight we are being given a gift again and that is by listening and being able to infuse what we hear into this moment and as we move forward into the next day. So our next rounds is going to be in January, excuse me, February. And it's uh, Arthur Kleinman, February 5th. And it's gonna be right here. He's gonna be talking about his book, the soul of care. Um, I hope you all join us. And before we get going, I'd like to introduce um, here to the stage, who will introduce our uh, keynote, is uh, Craig Irving. Thank you. Hello, everyone. It's my distinct pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Morris Spiegel, my very good friend and cherished colleague. I met Mora first in 2003 when we were both participants in Rita's National Endowment for the Humanities funded Exemplary Education Project. Titled Narrative Medicine, Teaching Humanities to Health Professions, it was a two-year-long seminar that convened Columbia faculty from diverse disciplines to explore why and how narrative training is beneficial 
in the medical setting. It was this group that developed the first narrative medicine curricula and formed the core of the original faculty for the program in narrative medicine. Shortly after we started meeting, I remember telling my partner, now husband John, about Mora. My words were something to the effect of, no matter what we're discussing, I'm always waiting for Mora to say what she thinks, because that's when we really get started. Mora is a senior lecturer of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University, where she teaches courses on fiction and film. She is a founder and associate director of the program in narrative medicine, now a division of narrative medicine, here at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, where she teaches film courses to medical students. Mora also teaches in Columbia University's Master of Science program in narrative medicine. She does a lot of teaching. More on that in a moment. Mora has run narrative medicine workshops at medical schools internationally, including for the staff of the NYU Bellevue Program for Survivors of Torture. She is the co-author of the Perkins Prize winning The Principles and Practices of Practice of Narrative Medicine, recently translated into Japanese, by the way. Co-editor of The Grim Reader, Writings on Death, Dying, and Living On. Co-author of The Breast Book, an Intimate and Curious History, which was a Book of the Month Club quality paperback selection, and editor of editions of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle and Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan of the Apes. Mora co-edited the journal Literature and Medicine with Rita Sharon for seven years, has written for the New York Times, and has published essays on the history of the emotions, fashion in film, the film viewer's parallel processes, and Charles Dickens, among other topics. And now, Mora is author of Sidney Lumet, A Life. An author's choice of subject often, perhaps not always, but often says a great deal about the author herself. In her preface, Mora notes that it was Sidney's movies that first attracted her. Quote, The tender treatment of flawed characters trying to be principled the sense of irony somehow fused with genuine political engagement, his delight in urban characters and in the endless surprise of city life all had for me an instant, uncanny familiarity of tone and orientation, close quote. As she delved deeper into Sydney's life, Mora found the source of her familiarity with Sydney's tone and orientation in a shared heritage, quote, I had grown up on New York's Lower East Side, where Sidney spent some of his childhood, and where my family had roots. Indeed, I would learn that his family and mine shared roots in the old country, too, in neighboring shtetls in Poland. Sidney's first language, Yiddish, the customs of his immigrant parents, his identification with the oppressed, and the curious amalgam of skepticism and magnanimity were familiar to me from my background. These elements were palpable throughout his work." Close quote. A Lower East Side Polish Jewish immigrant heritage, a sense of irony fused with genuine political engagement, identification with the oppressed, delight in urban characters and the endless surprise of city life, curious amalgam of skepticism and magnanimity, these are certainly characteristics Mora shares with her subject. And as her friend of almost 20 years, I can most gratefully speak to her 
tender treatment of my own all-too-flawed character. Maura is a very good friend to very many people, some of whom are here tonight. Tender, yes, beyond measure, and generous, patient, forgiving, and deeply, insightfully, untiringly attentive. These qualities are also what make Mora a brilliant teacher. In his Pedagogy of the Pressed, Paulo Freire writes that dialogue, which is the heart of all effective cooperative pedagogy, quote, cannot exist in the absence of love for the world and for people, because love is an act of courage, not of fear. Love is commitment to others. If I do not love the world, if I do not love life, if I do not love people, I cannot enter into dialogue, close quote. Moore's awards for and legendary reputation as a teacher testify to her love of the world, of life, of people. Her first teaching appointment was at Bennington College, where students would line up outside the registrar's office the night before registration opened to enroll in her courses. True story. Today, almost 30 years after the, she first stepped in front of a classroom, her brilliance as a teacher remains undimmed. I have taught with Maura many times, and I can tell you that I feel smarter just sitting next to her in a classroom. <laughs> she is the professor students arrange to meet with for 15 minutes and then stay for an hour, or two, or three. And Maura's generosity, patience, insight, untiring attentiveness and tenderness toward flawed characters are also what make her an ideal biographer. I hope you'll all have the pleasure of reading Sidney Lumet, A Life. I know it's cliche to say that it's a labor of love, but if we think of love in the Fralian sense, love of the world, of people, of life as the foundation of dialogue, then we begin to approach the essence of this book. Sidney Lumet's identity, like all of our identities, was formed in, continually evolved in, lived in his relationships. To do justice to his life, therefore, required that Morris spend many hours in conversation with those who knew Sidney best. To engage in conversation, Emmanuel Levinas wrote, is to, quote, receive from the other beyond my own capacity. But this also means to be taught. The relation with the other, or conversation, is an ethical relation, close quote. Sidney Lumet, A Life, is an expression not just of Maura's capacity for teaching, but of her openness to receive from others beyond this capacity, her openness to being taught, to conversation, to ethical relation. Here now to share with us the promise and peril of telling someone else's life is Maura Spiegel. Try standing over here so I can see everyone. Is that is that sound good? Is that good? Okay. All right. Thank you, Craig. <laughs> God. And thank you, Donna, for everything that you've done. Really, so many things. And thank you, Sonia. And thank you, Rita. And thank you all for being here. Really. Okay. Um, I'm just going to start. I loved working on this book. But I thought that this evening I would tell you about some of the hurdles it presented, challenges so different from those I was accustomed to. Here's how it happened. 
I had been working away on a book for a university press about the films of Sidney Lumet when he passed away on April 9th, 2011. Some few months later, I got a call out of the blue from a literary agent asking if I'd be interested in writing his biography. I instantly said no. That would not be possible. I have no idea how to do that. No, no, no. He said, give it some thought. The idea grew on me. What drew me was in part what drew me to the films. The fact that when I watched any of his films, great ones or not so great, I felt an almost uncanny sense of familiarity and recognition. It was what had drawn me to the academic book. I was finding, though, that building my academic arguments around the films, I wasn't getting closer to that thing, that sense that I had. I know this guy. I know what he's thinking about and why. It felt so personal. Did you ever have that experience with a writer or an artist or a filmmaker, a connection to their work so deep in your makeup that you can't quite put words to it? The more I learned about his life, his Jewish-Polish immigrant's parents, very like my father's, his New York City childhood, much of it spent on the Lower East Side, also like my father's and my own, his summers at left-wing Jewish summer camps, so familiar to me, I grew semi-confident that maybe I was the person to write this book. The research, I realized, would be a deep dive into the world my father grew up in, the New York they both traveled through that formed their brand of ethnic, male, mid-century, left-leaning liberalism that I grew up around and that today seems a universe away. Through exploring Lumet's life, I might get some vantage on my own on why I think the way I do, and maybe even gain perspective enough to reassess some of my assumptions. Visiting my mother one evening in this period of deciding, I mentioned the biography. We were sitting at her kitchen table, and as usual, she was listening intently but silently, her silence the result of multiple TIAs that left her aphasic, so painfully frustrating for someone who loved words as she did. But at this moment, um, as sometimes happened, as if by magic, a sentence emerged with perfect clarity. Oh, he was a friend of your father's. (laughs) My father had died in 1977, and that was the entire story. I could get no detail, and I was left to wonder in what way they were friends. Childhood friends playing Ring Olivio on Rivington Street? Or maybe because my father was a New York judge, they might have connected in that context, given Sydney's focus on courtroom drama. Did my mother mean real friend or just passing acquaintance? If they um, were real friends, why didn't I know they were friends? The story was inaccessible, just vapors. But somehow it settled the matter for me. And I eventually did find a person in Sydney's life who was also a friend of my father's. I got started in earnest, and the research on his milieu was immensely pleasurable. Learning about his father's Polish shtetl, where his mother delivered milk with a ladle and pail, the Warsaw, where Sidney's mother learned, learned her learned affluent family resided, his parents' marriage, his father's harrowing escape from the Polish army draft, and their eventual arrival in, on these shores. I read deeply into history of the Yiddish radio and theater in which Sidney's family performed and where Sidney was first featured when he was only four years old. 
the surprisingly progressive and daring Broadway shows of the 1930s, in which Sidney became for a few years the go-to child actor. The celebrated and path-breaking group theater that embraced Sidney at age 13, steeping him in what would become method acting. The elite signal corps of World War II into which Sidney enlisted at 17, working with the new, brand new technology of radar in the China-Burma-India front. Then, after the war, his um, relationship to the actor's studio, where he was a founding member. And part of my, f- my favorite research, the harem scarum early years of television, where Sidney directed live shows from a studio that was nested upstairs in Grand Central Station. All of this research was rewarding in itself, but of course, I couldn't write a book that just delivered context. I needed to know him, not just know about him. I soon discovered to my dismay that Sidney had left no archive, none. No personal or professional correspondence, no diaries, no papers at all. I had almost um, nothing in his own voice, his private, intimate voice, except, of course, his movies. More on that in a moment. I'd heard a rumor that he had begun a memoir, but if it was true, I didn't know how to locate it. Why did he leave no archive? I would come to learn that Sidney liked to throw things away. Writer and producer David Black mentioned to me that Sidney, quote, erased his calendar after events. And then he said, hmm, this is going to be a problem for biographers. (laughs) His decades-long friend, um, screenwriter Walter Bernstein, put it this way. He put a lid on a lot of stuff. It enabled him to keep going. He lived totally in the present. And then quoting um, the legendary Satchel Paige, he added... Sidney's philosophy was, don't look back, they might be gaining on you. (laughs) His daughter, Jenny, told me that he could metaphorically put something in a drawer and never open it again. Two of his four wives separately recounted um, an unsettling story with this same theme. His first wife, Rita Gam, ran into Sidney walking with his fourth wife, (laughs) Heidi, on 57th Street. To Rita's astonishment, and I quote, he didn't know who I was. <laughs> Pidey, who his fourth wife, who immediately recognized Rita, prompted Sidney to say hello. It was obvious to both of the women what had happened there. Among a million other things, I wanted to know why Sidney didn't like to look back, and I did come to an understanding of why, at least in part, as I hope to convey. Thus began the effort to make contact with people in his life, to interview them, the wives, four of them, two daughters, producers, crew crew members, actors. How, I wondered, do you track down movie stars? Someone mentioned they had the same barber on the east side as Sean Connery, who appeared in five of Sidney's films. Where did I go with that? But this is New York, and people know people who know people, and slowly I began to make contacts. The interviewing was fun. My initial big score was Sidney's first wife, Rita Gam, who, a starlet in the 1950s, at 80, was still beautiful. To my question about whether Sidney had a romantic side, she surprised me with, well, it was more like wham-bam, thank you, (laughs) ma'am. 
To my delight, I formed a kind of sweet acquaintance with wife number two, Gloria Vanderbilt. She wanted to share her feelings for Sydney to get them on the record, and she let me look at their correspondence, including the funny drawings he made for her each morning before he left for work. She preserved them all in a silk beribboned bundle, different bundles, in, in a seashell-covered box kept close in her bedroom. It took time and a lot of different approaches to win the trust of Sydney's fourth wife. Pidey is her nickname. They were married for 30 years. I knew she was a private person. Almost nothing was out there about her, except that she had been Bobby Kennedy's high school sweetheart. Now it was getting to be time to start writing for real, and that task, the writing, presented the biggest hurdle of all. How would I narrate all this great material? The self-doubt came on strong. My internal critics got busy. Not only how was I to take command of this person's life story, but who the hell was I to take command of this person's story? In narrative medicine, we often ponder narrative ethicality, remaining ever mindful of who does and doesn't get to tell their stories, and which stories never get told. Handling the stories of others we recognize in narrative medicine presents a distinctive, a distinctive ethical predicament. I was well aware, for example, that even a well-meaning and enormously successful book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, raised legitimate issues of narrative ethicality. Arthur, um, author Rebecca Skloot presents a history of the HeLa cell, her chapters alternate between scientific narrative and the story of Henrietta Lacks' family and forebears, and of Lacks herself, the 31-year-old African-American woman who, dying of cervical cancer, sought treatment from the then-segregated Johns Hopkins Hospital, where a piece of her tumor was removed without her knowledge for research. When it was discovered that her cells could survive and reproduce in a laboratory indefinitely, allowing scientists to carry out experiments they couldn't perform on a living person. Her cell line, dubbed HeLa, changed medical history. These cells have been bought and sold by the billions. Yet, as Rebecca Skloot reports, Henrietta's family was never consulted or in any way compensated. And at the time of her writing, they could not afford health insurance. Aware of her role as the producer of meaning, and her position as a white outsider, Skloot worked hard not to be yet another exploiter of the Lax family. Yet simply the fact that her voice controlled the story meant she controlled its meaning, arguably taking something of value from them. Every narrative choice produces effects and consequences. For example, back to, to Skloot, among the many, many stories of the Lax family that Skloot reports, are details about sexual abuse and about family members who are incarcerated. In the interest, perhaps, of thoroughness, she includes aspects of family dysfunction that reverberate for them and that play into certain stereotypes, and arguably, she, therefore, she thereby loses the thread of structural oppression she sought to emphasize. As the storyteller, Skloot faced ethical dilemmas that paralleled the arrogation of Henrietta Lacks' biological material. As she put to use the voices and stories of the Lacks family, inevitably and inescapably betraying the dictum, 
nothing about us without us. Who, after all, is authorized to tell? Who is not, and who decides? Sidney's story, mercifully, did not carry these same stakes, but ethical decisions presented themselves throughout the telling. Was I obliged to include a fact simply because I knew it? Another challenge for me was that as an academic, I was trained to write to make a point. What point did I want to make of another person's life story? How do you decide about where meaning resides in someone's life or in one's own? As Judith Butler exhorts us to consider, we can only, we can, sorry, we can, how can we truly know another when we cannot know ourselves? In my anxiety and procrastination, a host of bad ideas presented themselves. (laughs) I'll write a metabiography, a book that acknowledges all the ethical and narrative issues involved in the task, or I'll make the book an oral history. I'll get the primary, the essential people in his life to recount important events and just compile them. Or I'll write an experimental biography, introducing all kinds of unconventional narrative techniques to convey multiple perspectives and demonstrate ethical dilemmas, such as invented dialogue, switches from third person to second person, breaks in the narrative for lists of unanswerable questions, and such. And here I have to just incidentally note that a biography of, of Dean Arbus, um, written in epigrammatic chunks with no ongoing narrative, came out to a lot of acclaim last year. <laughs> and in today's times, a biography as oral history of Mike Nichols received a lot of acclaim. <laughs> but it's 150 friends telling. In any case, and wisely, my friend Mindy Fully Love, at a meeting of our remarkable writing group, responded to these high-concept approaches of mine. No, that's boring. Just write the story. (laughs) Right words, right time. But there was still a matter of finding the confidence, the authority to tell the story, and how to keep faith with the project and myself, which I think is such a big part of writing, of the insane push of writing, keeping faith. I went back to the films, which were, after all, what started me down this road. I remembered something Sidney had said, and I quote, I know people who disguise their lives, and their disguises are more exciting and revealing than the lives of people who throw themselves at you naked. There are many moments in his films that feel to me like this kind of disguise. Sidney in his own voice, the voice of a great filmmaker, So I thought I would share a few such moments with you and explain how they helped me on my journey and helped me understand that Sidney did look back, but only in his films and only in disguise. I learned that Sidney had added a significant element to his otherwise astonishingly faithful screen adaptation of Eugene O'Neill's autobiographical masterpiece, Long Day's Journey into Night which Sidney made in 1962, um, quite early in his career. I'm going to show you a little clip from it. But to set up the clip, Mary Tyrone, played by Catherine Hepburn, is a morphine addict. Her addiction has plunged the family into a hell of guilt and blame and remorse. In this scene, the younger of the two sons, Edmund, based on Eugene O'Neill's younger brother, tries to break through to his mother, who has grown increasingly detached over the course of the play's long day, having again succumbed to her addiction. 
He has just returned from the doctor where he has learned that they have all, what they have all suspected, that his illness, TB, then a likely death sentence, has advanced. So I just want to say that the clips are not invert, they're grainy, and if you watch the film in another context, they look more beautiful. So, okay. Person you tell me next you're gonna die. <laughs> 
You can do that. Your own father. Well, I'm not going to actually hear that consumption. I hate it having to become morbid and gloomy. I forbid you to remind me of my father's death. You hear? Yes, I hear. Wish to God I didn't. It's hard to think at times, having a dope thing for a mother. Perhaps as you may have guessed, what Sidney added to the scene was the slap. He directed Hepburn to haul off and smack him. I found in the slap a potent clue to Sidney's own history and pain as he experienced it. As I understood the slap, it is not only a mother's refusal to absorb information that is intolerable to her, it is also the gesture of a mother who hasn't the capacity to put her child first. Sidney almost never spoke publicly about his mother, and there was a fair amount of misinformation in the press about her, which he never corrected. He once or twice referred to her in interviews as my distant mother, and he shared that he'd only rarely heard the sound of her laughter. Here I will mention that in the fullness of time, Heidi Lumet placed in my hands the ultimate gift, the rumored unfinished memoir Sidney had begun writing when he was in his 60s. No one outside the family had seen it. Sidney never indicated, except in the pages of this manuscript, that his mother suffered from mental illness, what he referred to as madness. His mother sometimes had what he called fits. Quote, I have no memory, he wrote, of anything or anyone bringing her happiness. Of their home, he notes, the house was rarely clean and the icebox was usually empty. He recalls only one consistent meal, boiled potatoes with boiled beef shredded into it, quote, so that the quarter pound of meat would feed us all. It didn't help that his father moved the family from place to place, sometimes several times a year, to take advantage of a rent-free first month as was the practice then. Sidney writes, and I quote, there was no familial life in the family. I have a picture of the four of us in the Bronx. My father is on one knee looking at the camera. Behind him, my mother is standing, a face devoid of expression. To her right, my sister stands stiffly, hands by her side, 
I'm on my mother's left, squinting at the sun, my mouth turned down. I once brought the photo to an analyst I was seeing. He stared at it and then said, nobody's touching anybody. It was true. Each of us looked at the camera with no contact toward the others. It was only after reading Sidney's memoir and also his father's unpublished memoir that I understood that Eugene O'Neill's tragic family in Long Day's Journey contained almost uncanny parallels to Sidney's own family. That unscripted slap took on new reverberations for me. The next clip I'd like to share is from a little more than halfway through the 1983 film Daniel, adapted from E.L. Doctorow's novel The Book of Daniel. This sequence, which unfolds in montage, a technique rarely used by Sidney, always stayed with me. It just stuck out. In it, a brother and sister, the young children of the fictionalized Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, have managed to slip away from the Bronx shelter where they've been placed while their parents are in prison, awaiting trial in the 1950s. The children begin their long walk home through a gray and indifferent New York City.
Daniel, the older child, grips his little sister by the hand and instructs her not to run, not to draw attention. Through much of the sequence, the camera keeps its distance, emphasizing how small, vulnerable, and isolated they are as they make their way through varied neighborhoods, some crowded, some deserted. Beneath the music, we hear six-year-old Susan ask her brother to slow down. Further along, we hear Daniel's whispered questions to her. Are you tired? And later, what are you crying about? Sydney had spent eight years raising the funds to make this film. But the project must have taken on greater poignancy for him after his only sibling, Faye, died in 1980 when, he was just, when she was just 59 and he was starting work on the film. In their youth, Sydney and his sister could not have been closer. They shared a bed until Sydney was 11, a fact startling today but less surprising in those times. One of Sydney's oldest friends, his first girlfriend, Ellen Adler, daughter of the legendary acting teacher Stella Adler, described the siblings to me. They were like two orphans in the storm. They clung to one another. Given their father's pattern of moving the family from place to place, it is easy to imagine the two children walking the streets, like Daniel and Susan in the film, trying to find their way in a new neighborhood. E.L. Doctorow, who adapted his novel for the film and, and was on the set while they made it, told me that the song, Robeson's Music, was Sidney's choice. Robeson's melancholy rendition conjures a darkness against which the little light has scant power. As the children are unknowingly and inevitably carried toward the gravest personal catastrophe, the execution of their parents, their somber progress grants the viewer time to ponder their fates. And Robeson's voice grounds the scene in, in Sydney's own history. Robeson was a political and cultural icon of the beleaguered American left of the late 1940s and 50s, and a personal one for Sydney. The songs he recorded were sung around the campfire at the socialist and Zionist summer camp Sidney and his sister attended when they were children. With the Rosenberg story, Sidney felt that Dr. O had chosen, and this is a quote from Sidney, the most unimaginable situation, the most bizarre and horrendous removal of parents to explore whether children can pull themselves out of their own graves, end quote. And likely he was thinking of his own sister's struggles with mental illness and her premature death. He wondered why one might survive and another not. His story goes on. When Sidney was 15 and his sister was 18, their mother died, along with the baby she was carrying. He never spoke publicly of this loss and rarely in private. This is how he recounted it in his memoir. Quote, my mother was now in her ninth month. She was 39 years old. She had taken to her bed the day before, saying only that something didn't feel right. For some reason, Faye and I were not in school. Maybe it was Saturday. His style of writing in this section is distinctly different from the rest of the memoir. The sentences are clipped and details unfold without comment. Sidney continues, We were in the living room playing Monopoly. Baruch, that's his father, wasn't home. From time to time, my mother would groan. One of us would go in, but she wouldn't want anything. Twice we went downstairs to a doctor who lived on the ground floor 
He wasn't in. We left messages for him. We tried calling my father at every possible place. We couldn't find him anywhere. End quote. In the subsequent sentences, Sidney at last introduces some of what he and Faye were feeling. Quote, the moans went on for hours. Our fear rose, but so did our irritation at her because she was ruining the game. Fear and irritation for ruining the game. This is his first self-reproach. He doesn't wonder about his mother's passivity, that she doesn't tell the children what to do, that she isn't there protecting herself, and in that way isn't there protecting them. Finally, he continues, when it grew dark, the doctor appeared. We led him into the bedroom. He pulled the covers back. A greenish liquid was um, from between her legs had spread onto the sheets. The doctor ran to the phone and called an ambulance. At that point, my father appeared. Faye immediately attacked him. Where the hell have you been? We've called all over. No one knew where you were. I thought of the years um, of fights about infidelity, Sidney writes. Here again, Sidney offers a glimpse into his internal state, his suspicion shared by his sister that while his mother was in labor, his father was with another woman. He continues, quote, my father and the doctor looked pale. The, amb the ambulance arrived. As she was being carried out, she reached for our hands. Quote, goodbye, my darling children. I hope to see you again. Faye and I smiled at her blue kisses and stood there terrified. Baruch went off with her in the ambulance. On Sunday, we took a cab to the hospital, Sydney continues. Baruch had told us nothing on Saturday other than the fact that the baby was dead. When we arrived at the hospital, we went up to a long hall. A doctor in a white coat came rapidly toward us. I'm very sorry, she's dead. I don't remember what my father did or Faye. I went into a corner and began to cry, long sobbing sounds like when you're two years old and have fallen and really hurt yourself. The pain seemed unbearable. I'd never felt anything like it. In the midst of it all, I remember thinking, remember this, you can use it someday. More self-reproach that in the midst of his unbearable pain, he was thinking of how his grief might someday serve his acting such a reaction could have been produced by shock or depersonalization or a loss of the sensation of reality in the moment. But Sidney chose a self-incriminating explanation. Indeed, he detaches from emotions that are too overwhelming. He steps out of pain he himself is going through and becomes an observer. 23 years after his mother's death, Sidney's psychiatrist prescribed a dose of LSD, which was then illegal, hoping it would help him out of a very dark time that included a half-hearted suicide attempt following his separation from Gloria Vanderbilt. Sidney asked his friend Walter Bernstein to stay with him through the experience. Walter recalled it was, um, that it was an all-nighter in the borrowed townhouse basement apartment where Sidney was holed up. Sidney was talking nonstop, Walter said. That is, when he wasn't dialing Gloria's number. One hallucination dominated that long night. Sobbing, Sidney described over and over that he was experiencing his own birth, and over and over he repeated that he had killed his mother being born. His refrain was that 
His head was too big, or he was too big, and he had killed her, Walter said. The self-reproach found in the memoir pages is here expressed in an hallucinatory conviction that he himself was the cause of his mother's death, his big head. Surprising to Walter was that Sidney never once talked with him afterwards about this painful and remarkable episode. Again, a drawer was shut. A final clip is from Sidney's great hit film of 1973, Serpico, the true story of the hippie cop who was responsible for the establishment of the Knapp Commission on Police Corruption.
this film, as in many of his films, Sidney expresses the principles he believed in, the causes he fought for. But here, as in other films, a distinctive power is achieved through his attention to his character's inner world. And he finds distinctive ways to convey emotional interiority. In the lingering image of Frank Serpico communing with the bird in the middle of the night, preparing for his confrontation with his fellow cops, and note that this scene takes us by surprise um, as it's the first time we encounter the parrot in the film, we feel him grounding himself, locating a needed clarity, holding on to his integrity. And in the energy, in the choreographed dispersal of the men at the end of the scene, we feel the impact of Serpico left alone, abandoned, at peril. In another note of the character Serpico, Sidney remarked affectionately, even admiringly, he's a pain in the ass. And later he said, I hope someday people will see that there's a lot of me in Serpico. Looking back from this vantage, there were a few key elements that helped me over the hurdle of the writing, of finding a voice, as they say. One was forming a relationship with Sydney's wives, especially Gloria Vanderbilt and Patty Lumet. It boosted my confidence. I was happiest in the writing when writing into those relationships, not to pretty things up or to present an easily digestible or uncomplicated account, but I felt invited somehow to tap into their love for him and their stake in the story. They became for me encouraging and confirming presences. I discovered I could find my most personal and truthful voice. I could be most myself when I felt the work meant something to others, not abstract others, but specific people. And equally crucial was reading the typed pages of Sidney's unfinished memoir with corrections penciled in Sidney's hand. When I opened the package, I was filled with trepidation. Would he resemble the person I thought he was? Had I surmised correctly from what I had seen and learned? What if I'd gotten him completely wrong? What a relief that nothing in those pages surprised me, although much of it broke my heart. And it made so much sense that he couldn't complete his memoir, never got beyond his early life. To look back, to get near the painful memories and give adequate expression to them he turned perhaps only half-consciously to the mediation of the films. Sidney's films, to some degree and and in some unwritten way, were pieces of his story. The emotional content often shows up without words, as in these examples, the slap, the children walking, and a man communing with a parrot, and they speak perhaps louder than words. We all live amidst interlocking stories, I love discovering the secret relation between Sidney's stories and his films, how he got things out of his head, his too big head. Sidney was processing things through other people's stories, which, after all, is what I was doing too, and how narrative medicine of both of us. Writing his biography couldn't be my story, but it also couldn't be not my story. I had to figure that out. I want to end with a quip of Eugene O'Neill's that I think describes so much about Sidney's storytelling. O'Neill said quite simply, the individual life is made significant just by the struggle. Thank you.
stove in here. Thank you, Maura. That was really interesting. Um, I was curious because, of course, I've come from a journalism background, and you know, from an academic background. If you ever felt tempted to bring your own story into the book, I haven't read it, and I don't know if you do that at all. But how you, in the end, decided to handle that conflict? Yeah, I didn't bring it in, but um, I, I, my colleagues in my writing group would say, like, comment on that. What's wrong? You know about Say something, you know? <laughs> like, add more commentary. And so I, I tried to do that, but I never, you know, spoke up about my own self or, you know, my own feelings in that way, yeah. It gives you something for talks. <laughs> Thank you for a fabulous talk. You're such a wonderful writer. Um, did you find your critical voice interfering with the style and the, did, were you tempted at times, I mean, you just sort of talked about that, but specifically the critical voice, were you tempted at times to bring it in and yeah. work on that? I, I, I felt, once I found a voice that I could actually start talking about this person, um, I couldn't figure out how I could bring in my critical voice. It was a very interesting thing. It just went away, and now I still have to finish the critical book I started, so i got to find it again. But it was... Um, it, it, it felt really like these were different parts of, you know, my being. So how are you finding your way back? It's tricky. I mean, I, I, um, I'm, I'm, you know giving talks about in more critical context, you know, trying to put together things as an argument, which is different, yeah. But, but more of the discovery is what you just told us here. I mean, all what you, I'm, I'm blown away by the um, revelations you've made to us, to the Jews. Um, there's something so deeply kind of analytic about it, psychoanalytic, that what you went through, what was it, four, five, six years, seven years, that Eight. you're in this <laughs> intense relationship with a man you don't see in some place over your shoulder, and, and, and there's something so deeply dynamic between you and this presence. Um, What's it like now for you that it's over? I don't know yet. I mean, it's not yet over exactly. But I, but I, um, yeah, I was surprised. I didn't think about that. That's just how I think, you know. So I was talking to El Doctorow, and he and he said, "Oh, you're doing something very psychological," you know. Like he was surprised by the questions I was asking him, and it was kind of like. Wait a minute! You're a novelist. You're talking. <laughs> what's happening here? Um, so that was a. Uh, he was noticing something that I just took as. How else do you think about human beings? I don't, you know. Um, but yeah, it. it I feel um, like he's not gone. I mean, he's part of my. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. 
talk to people who are sort of connected to that early time in the actor's studio. Um, but mostly, Sidney got, uh, he, the group theater experience, I think, you know, which was pre, the pre-actor's studio was so powerful for him. He got booted from the actor's studio after its first year, and he, so he had kind of complicated feelings about that. <laughs> and um, he ended up uh, working a lot with Meisner. Um, and um, so that was his but he you know he was an actor's director he could call any actor and they were there because he had uh, you know the endless amounts of Oscar nominations for his actors I mean he, he he had an amazing way with actors and he said it was his job to to adjust to what their method was rather than to make them follow his method and I I had the pleasure of talking to his assistant director, Bert Harris, who's an amazing guy, and he worked also with Eli Kazan, so he would go between them. And the two, each of those two guys would be like, so what's it like on the... And, and, um, uh, and what he, he said was that um, Kazan would sort of do a little manipulation to get somebody to feel something, and Sidney was more cerebral or tell them how to move their body as a way of, or where to look as a way of, give them action direction, uh, more than sort of taking them into a feeling. Um, and that was interesting to hear. I think he tried millions of things, you know, over the years. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I really appreciate what you have shared earlier. Um, I, I'm always interested in um, storytellings and also it's actually part of my cast going in the public health department as well. Um, I'm just curious about your insight in um, inducing storytelling, inducing narrative stories um, in the um, healthcare delivery settings as, uh, as public health practitioner or healthcare, um, healthcare service providers. What is your insight um, on, on that? Like how do we use that in the clinical setting and where the places that we work? Yeah, great, huge, gigantic question. <laughs> um, I'll just say a word about teaching film to the medical students, which is 
one of the ways I use narrative medicine. Um, and it really is a way to, um, I try to get them to notice their experience of the film. What, what happened when you watched it? What happened when you watched it? And sometimes I'll say, okay, uh, where'd you cry? And there'll be all different answers. And to get people to begin to attend to their own experience within a powerful moment as part of our training. It's, a, it's one part, but it is about using a text to let someone sort of see themselves mirrored in the text in some way that they hadn't before. So, you know, and to begin to recognize, oh, I'm here, right? This is happening to me. Um, and who am I and what? <laughs> so to find a standpoint, uh, which is crucial for beginning to speak out when you need to, for taking care of yourself, and for recognizing your impact on a, on a patient, um, most of all. Yeah. Hi. Oh. Oh. Hi. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to the process of building trust with the intimate family members of Sydney Lumet. Um, I think it's really remarkable that Addie Lumet gave you that memoir. Me too. Um, and it sounds from what you were saying like they maybe actually got a lot out of the process of talking with you about Sydney. Um, and then to what degree did you involve them or seek input from them once you had a draft or were there areas where you drew a line? Yeah. Thanks for asking that. Um, uh, it, part of the trust was I had to, especially with Pidey, approach her, then have somebody else approach her, then have somebody else approach her. It took time, um, but she um, she was wonderful. She also we met for uh, in a cafe the first time, and I realized classically for the first time I think in my life I forgot my wallet, <laughs> and I, so I called my daughter and said, "Bring my wallet to this restaurant," and um, so she actually met my daughter in that first encounter, and I think that actually had a big effect. Um, and, uh, you know, helped something happen between us. Um, but, but, you know, this is part of the narrative medicine listening thing, I mean, and, and figuring out how to help somebody feel heard and take in what they're, what's, what they're saying and what they're not saying, you know. Um, so that training really helped in those manners. I didn't um, give them drafts, but I did legally was required to give Pidey a huge chunk everything I used in the memoir. So she had maybe six or seven chapters and waiting for her to get back to me and the book was already in production. It was like, ah, and then came this wonderful, warm, affectionate response. Um, uh, so, yeah, they, they really um, were amazing and she was, um, she's a lovely, amazing woman, I thought. Lynn. Um, oh, oh. So, uh, first I actually want to thank you, Craig, for doing honor and um, articulating what so many of us feel for Maura, who have been touched by her work. So, first, thank you. Um, and for Maura, um, so you, you've done such a wonderful job articulating how, um, in this specific case, but also in general, the perils of studying somebody else's life is opening up a box into your own um, and learning about yourself um, 
but you are tasked with telling his story. So I'm wondering about in that process for you, were there ever moments where things came up that if it was your own story, you would have the right to say, oh, I'm not going there. Um, thank you very much. I'll, I'll work on that some other time. You know, as, as a writer myself, I used to write about my own story, so I have the, uh, that option. But you had this other allegiance that you had to obey. And I, so I, I'm wondering if there were ever moments where in some ways you had to betray your own instincts in order to serve his story. Um, and if that is the case, of course, I'm also curious as to what did you discover about yourself in the process, um, in this in this process that might have been a surprise. Well, that's a really deep question, Carly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess I would say, you know, I want to give you a long answer over a beer, <laughs> but I would say that um, uh, my own um, discovery about, you know, my judgment about what I should and shouldn't say, where I felt like I'm not going to tell that thing that somebody told me, which is really juicy. Um, I discovered that I was... Um, nice. <laughs> I mean, so, yeah, was like, that was kind of a discovery. I just didn't want to use that stuff. Um, and um, it wasn't that I wanted to, I was a mindful of like the critic who says this person is not, is just not being critical at all. That wasn't true. I, I mean, I was worried about that. But so I, it's not that I was never critical, but there were things I just thought, no, I'm not putting it in. Um, and um, so I don't know if that quite, it's a piece of what you were asking anyway. Yeah. Last question. Hi, Laura. Hey. Thank you for the wonderful talk. I'm curious, you spent, what, six or seven years in mesh with this person, and it must be a little hard to let go. And I'm also curious, what would it take? Or would you write another biography? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I don't know if I would. I mean, I, it was this guy. I mean, I just thought I was connected already to this guy. If something, you know, it's not, it feels like I learned a lot, and what a waste not to use <laughs> but, um, but I don't know. I haven't, you know, nobody's approached me. <laughs> Um, so I, I, um, I don't know. I, I do feel, like I said, that he's not going away, you know. Um, and I, I feel also like I, I mean, I, I was deeply sad when Gloria Vanderbilt died. I, I feel like, you know, I made these really surprising relationships through doing this and um, was um, expanded in myself in you know, that way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.